0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live.
1: Hello, and welcome to the morning break with Graham Stanley. On today's show, I'll be talking about some commonly held ideas about learning and education that have little or no evidence to support them. In other words, myths. If you're listening in live, why not call in and join in the conversation? Welcome to the Morning Break everyone. I'm Graham speaking to you live from Mexico City and today I'll be talking about a number of commonly held ideas of learning and education that have little or no evidence to support them. Despite this, these myths persist. Why is that? Where did these ideas originate? And why do so many people still believe in them? No amount of belief makes something a fact. In his 2002 book, Conjectures and Refutations, The Growth of Scientific Knowledge, Karl Popper wrote, Science must begin with myths and with the criticism of myths, neither with the collection of observations nor with the invention of experiments, but with the critical discussion of myths and of magical techniques and practices. So for today's show, I've taken a number of widely held myths And for each of them, we will have an overview of what it is, where it comes from and why it has become popular. And then we look at why we shouldn't believe in the myth, let alone teach our learners about it. What are these myths that I'll be speaking about? Well, the first one is displayed in the promo image for today's show, if you if you've had the opportunity to have a look at that. It's a pyramid that prepares to show the effectiveness of learning. The second one is probably going to be the myth that most educators will argue the case for, that people have different learning styles. The others include the claim that you should take into account different types of intelligence in education. The idea that you learn better if you discover things for yourself rather than have others explain them to you. And that all chestnut at school kills creativity. Then there's the myth that 93% of all communication is nonverbal. The other one that we can learn while we're asleep, the myth that men have different brains to women, and the one that claims we use only 10% of our brains. We need to let these myths go. Teachers in particular can play an important role in dispelling them. At the very least, if there's anything here that you incorporate into your classes, then you should consider dropping it. You may also find space to talk with your students about some of these commonly held beliefs and debunk them. Come on, folks, let's move away from methods, approaches and theories that have been shown by evidence to be wrong or at the very, be- very best only partly effective.
2: teachers let us all take a long hard look today at some of the things we believe in that may not be true some of the approaches and theories that are now considered to be myths may be things you've already discounted others may be things you've always believed in if so then some of what you'll hear in the show will hurt at the very least think about them and consider whether you should be holding beliefs that the majority of people and the evidence points to being false listen to these words from the 2015 book Omen myths about learning and education the biggest problem with educational myths Is that people who believe in them will often be able to find enough evidence in their day-to-day practice to support their beliefs the reason for this is simple it is like when you buy a new car suddenly you see that same make of car everywhere you go often the same model and color it's just you didn't notice them until now in the same way we are quick to recognize indications for the ideas we believe in the experiences that don't support our case we simply ignore unconsciously or not this we usually do because of a tendency to find meaningful patterns in random noise or because of confirmation bias finding confirmatory evidence for what we already believe in john hattie noted that people who had trouble with his work visible learning about what works and what doesn't work in teaching and learning tended to say things such as the results do not mirror my experience or you're talking about averages and i'm not average or you're missing the nuances of what happens in the classroom
1: thank you chad now i know from past discussions on social media that if you start talking about many of these myths a lot of educators start disagreeing with you so if you're listening in live and would like to join me to argue the case for any of the things i'll be talking about today or to uh, to agree with me then that would be great to do so please download the podbean app onto your mobile visit ttradio.org and click on listen live on the homepage. that should take you directly into the show and there you can post comments and ask questions during our conversation and hello norm who's just joined uh me in the studio um please come and join norm and tom and everyone else who will be joining us today uh and uh if you would like to actually come and speak well i don't have any guests today so i would be very welcome of the company there um we shall have more from me and these Urban learning myths right after the Teacher Talk radio news.
0: This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.wetheslacgroup.co.uk to find out more. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
3: Hello, this week I continue with my series on home connection and getting the best performance. The question today is wired or wireless connection. Which is best? In the past, the wired connection was considered the fastest, and this would be the end of the episode. However, modern wireless speeds are comparable with a wired connection. So what factors affect performance? The first factor to consider is can you actually connect via a wire? Some devices don't have an Ethernet or compatible port to have a wired connection. Being hardwired allows a more stable connection. You're not relying on high frequency waves to transmit your data, and waves are susceptible to interference in the shape of distance from the transmitter receiver, in human language your hub. Then there are walls, furniture, other devices, basically anything that gets in the way. So the first tip is, if possible, use a wired connection. At home though this is easier said than done. You need to be reasonably close to your home hub, as this is where the ports are, and sometimes that's not a great place to work. If you if you are after a wired connection away from your hub, then take a look at using powerline adapters. These are two plugs that use your existing home electric wiring to create a virtual wired connection to anywhere in the building that has a plug socket. They are relatively cheap and some can also be used as wireless extenders, allowing you to create a better Wi-Fi coverage in dark spots in your home. At around £30-50, pounds, it's a relatively cheap and aesthetically pleasing option compared to running cables around your home. Meshing is the next solution to improve coverage. More recently, homes have been adopting the mesh system. Meshing is linking wireless access points together to extend their range. All have the same sign-in, so you can seamlessly move from one to the other with uninterrupted connection. Starting at around 80 pounds, it's a more expensive option, but if you only have devices that use Wi-Fi, this might be the answer for you. With most home networks, after bandwidth availability, interference is your next enemy. Always try to place your home hub in the most central place if the telephone sockets allow. Otherwise, consider power line adapters or meshing. Most modern internet providers give you options to buy these devices from them. This will guarantee it works for your network, but be aware this will come at a higher price tag. If this has given you food for thought, I'd love to hear from you. Why not get in touch at TT Radio 2022? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two
0: Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio.
4: If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future
1: and welcome back to the morning break as i mentioned in the introduction today's show is dedicated to myths of learning and education the very first myth is that the effectiveness of learning can be displayed in a pyramid to help me explain each of the myths I've asked my friend Mia, the AI who I interviewed on a previous show to introduce them. So what is the myth of the learning pyramid, Mia, and what do you think of it?
4: Back in 1946, an American educator called Dale Smith developed something called the cone of experience that has also come to be known as the learning pyramid, a diagram summarizing a system for different types of mediated learning experiences. Dale's original cone included no numbers, and it has been widely misrepresented. It was a simple and effective intuitive model of audio visual methods in teaching, and it was not based on any scientific research. Unfortunately, the cone was taken by others and over the years has been transformed into what is commonly referred to as the pyramid of learning, with pedagogical labels and percentages. One of these states that people generally remember 10% of what they read. of what they hear, 30% of what they see, 50% of what they see and hear, 70% of what they write and 90% of what they do? It is often credited to the National Training Laboratories in Maine, USA, which makes it sound scientific, but it is actually a load of codswallop. If you contact NTL about the study they will tell you it was carried out in the early 60s but they no longer can find the original research that supports the numbers.
1: Thank you Mia. So the learning pyramid has its origin in Dale's corner of experience but is now often credited to the National Training Laboratories. In the highly recommended book Urban Myths About Learning and Education by Pedro de Brucchere, Paul A. Kirchner and Caspar D. Holsoff, which I'm using as a source for today's show, it stated that the origin of this research can be traced back to the 1940s, but no documented research is now available. What does the pyramid tell us? To teachers, it suggests that if you're the type of teacher who just teaches a subject, then your learners won't learn much, that the traditional teaching methods um, all have low retention scores. It's more beneficial according to the pyramid, to conduct lessons where learners explain content to each other. For example, to many of us that might sound intuitively right, but it's not based on evidence or, as Mia stated, it's a load of codswallop. The percentages are also too rounded, which should always raise an alert, as it's almost impossible in scientific research to have those kinds of results. If you would like to talk about this or any of the other urban myths that I'll be talking about on today's show then please come and join me I'm speaking to you live you can download the Podbean app and come into the studio and and speak your mind talk about what you think about this urban myth about learning and education or others or do you have one that particularly irritates you for example or one that you particularly believe in where most people don't or whatever you want, really. Anyway, so let's turn to the second of our myths, learning styles. This one is a particular bugbear of mine, and one that is still widely held by lots of teachers. And it's still also taught to teachers, in my experience, on teacher training programs, for example. Now, let's be clear about the myth of learning styles. It is the idea that some of us are, for example, visual learners, And the hardcore learning style believers are all for classifying learners into types. Then there are others for whom it's all just about learning preferences. Or in other words, that we should respect the students, that some students prefer to learn in a particular way. Be it by writing things down, hearing something, watching a video, etc. And we should take that into account when it comes to teaching. Let's see what Mia has to say about learning styles.
4: Do people have different styles of learning? Well, people are different, and so the idea we learn differently sounds like a truism. For many teachers, then, it feels intuitively right to say some people learn better visually while others are auditory or kinesthetic learners. Many people also like to say they are, for example, a visual learner. The first problem with learning styles is that there is a big difference between what someone thinks about this and what actually leads to better learning. In a meta-analysis of studies in 1982, Clark found learner preference was typically uncorrelated or negatively correlated with learning and learning outcomes. And then there's the concept of learning styles itself, which usually means classifying people into distinct groups, such as visual or auditory or kinesthetic learners. This has received very little support from objective studies, and attempts to validate learning styles have not been successful. Learning styles theories are based on the premise that the way you think about something determines how easily you can learn, but studies have shown this is not how the brain works. If you ask someone to memorize something, it's not a question of what they see or hear, but one of meaning. Should you change your lessons to the perceived or reported learning styles of your students? There is almost no scientific evidence for learning style categorizations and no proof they add any value in the classroom.
1: Thank you, Mia. Before we go any further, let's answer the usual response uh, by fans of learning styles to what's just been said. Does this mean all learners are the same and should be taught in the same way? No. Varying the way you teach, including visuals, getting students moving and providing rich content that includes listening and viewing, etc., is always going to be a good thing. Different learners react to things in different ways, and you should make the classroom experience an interesting one, of course, with a variety of different ways of presenting information and practicing the skills. That doesn't mean you need to categorize learners or to try to find out what learning style or preference they have before you can teach them. Unfortunately, this is probably the most persistent of all myths that I'm presenting today it's an idea that refuses to die despite uncementable evidence that the emperor has no clothes part of the problem i think is the amount of people have jumped on the learning styles bandwagon over the years my experience the only people who are keen to defend learning styles these days are those educators who have some kind of vested interest in theory continuing so these are people who have for example written books for teachers about learning styles or or articles or who still teach courses that incorporate it uh, yeah so myth number three turning to the next one is a neuromyth about the two hemispheres of the brain if I had a brain cell an extra brain cell for every time I've heard someone state this then I'd be a very clever person indeed Yes, it's the idea that the left part of the brain is analytical and the right half creative.
4: What is creativity if not being able to view things differently and look at problems with a fresh perspective? Of course, the brain is involved in creativity, but not just one half of it. If anything, creativity comes from the interaction between the two hemispheres of the brain. Despite the two hemispheres being heavily connected to each other, The myth that the right half is where creativity lies persists. The origin of this first appeared in the second half of the 20th century. Now, 90% of people are right-handed and the reason for that is genetic, although it's a mystery why there are so much more right-handed people than left-handed people. Perhaps this is where the idea came from that right-brained people are intuitive and creative thinkers and left-brained people more analytical, and that they pay attention to details. It's true that the two halves are different and that some brain functions reside more on one side of the brain than the other. We know this from people who have strokes that affect a particular part of the brain. There are areas of the brain that control movement of the left arm and leg, and vice versa, for example. The majority of people use the left half of the brain for language, but even then, the right half still plays a role. However, for individual personality traits, such as creativity, or a tendency towards the rational, there has been little or no evidence supporting the idea that these reside in one half of the brain. A study in 2013 from the University of Utah demonstrated that activity is similar on both sides of the brain regardless of personality. Although there is no hard evidence from research that both sides of the brain are involved in all creative processing, there is no reason to assume a left-brained and right-brained style of thinking either
1: thank you Mia I also read that the concept of different halves of the brain emerged in the 19th century when doctors discovered that if one side of the brain was damaged certain functions would disappear although the leap from that to the left brain right brain thinking uh, being different didn't happen until much later as you mentioned this is another myth that persists although it makes no sense to talk about people being more left brain brained or more right brained many people still do so it's also another way i think of pigeonholing people into one of two boxes why do we keep seeing this myth well i think there is a lot of evidence that it's effective when it comes to marketing um, or products for example that people are um, apparently more likely to sign up for a training program that mentions developing your right brain for example And the mention of the word brain uh, in these marketing materials makes some people think that it must be scientific. It isn't. So let's stop perpetuating this myth. So moving on, our third myth is the idea that there are different kinds of intelligence. Mia, what can you tell us about this one and what do you make of that?
4: The American psychologist Howard Gardner launched his theory of multiple intelligences in 1983 and since then it has taken hold of the imagination and become very popular. According to the theory, intelligence is not one thing that affords us the ability to learn but there exists an ability to process information through different intelligences that reside in different parts of the brain. It's an attractive idea because it moves away from the classic idea of intelligence as represented by the IQ or intelligence quotient test, and it means some people may turn out to be intelligent in different ways. Gardner identified the following intelligences, verbal linguistic intelligence, word smart. Mathematical logical intelligence, math smart. Visual spatial intelligence, picture smart. Musical rhythmical intelligence, music smart bodily kinesthetic intelligence movement smart interpersonal intelligence people smart intrapersonal intelligence self smart naturalist intelligence nature smart valuable work has been done by teachers because of this theory because they tend to recognize the differences in people for this reason the idea of multiple intelligences has brought a lot of value to education however Gardner himself believes his theory has often been incorrectly interpreted. He has said the following, a myth that irritates me is that people place my intelligences on the same footing as learning styles. My own research and observations lead me to suspect that this is a wrong assumption. If we are talking about multiple intelligences, we mean that we react individually in different ways to different types of content, such as language, music, or other people. This is something completely different from a learning style.
1: Thank you, Mia. Gardner has also said that another myth that is widely believed is that because we have a number of different intelligences, we need to develop the same amount of tests to measure each individual intelligence. And um, he says that he's against measuring intelligence unless it is for specific learning objective uh, objectives and educators have pointed out a number of problems with the theory of multiple intelligences as late as 2006 there were no published studies that offered evidence of the validity of multiple intelligences and the same researcher who pointed this out lynn waterhouse has also said that enthusiasm for the use of the theory in classroom practice should be tempered by The awareness that the lack of sound empirical support makes it likely that its application will have real power to enhance people learning beyond that stimulated by initial excitement of something new again in the book urban myths about learning and education which i recommend if you're interested in the subject of uh, educational and learning myths they concluded multiple intelligences to be more of a booster of self-esteem than a prescription for teaching and learning and they go on to say that teachers should not be discouraged however and should continue to find out as much as possible about the different talents as talents of pupils so that you can make the best positive use of them uh, to help help your students of course next On our list is a myth close to my heart, and then one that affects me personally. It's the one that if you don't learn a language when you're young, you lose the chance to learn it. Let's hear what Mia thinks about
4: that. If you don't learn a language when you are young, it will take you much more time and effort to learn it when you are older. As stated in the urban myths about learning and education book, modern day researchers now regard this as a myth. There may be times when learning a language is easier than others, but it doesn't mean we are incapable of learning a language in later life. Certainly the ability to distinguish between different vocal sounds deteriorates as we grow older. It is the case that the earlier the better is true when it comes to learning a language, but it is definitely not true that it is too late to learn after a certain age.
1: Thank you, Mia. This is interesting to me because I read somewhere um, and... I think this is true i hope so i haven't had the chance to uh to check it, it that at a certain age the brain changes and the brains of people who are taught to speak another language at a very young age um i those who we could consider are bilingual are very different from those who learn when they're older even when they're teenagers In my own case with spanish for example although i studied it at school when i was a teenager I didn't really start learning it in earnest until I was in my late 20s and um, it, it is definitely the case that uh, I have more difficulties with speaking Spanish, for example, than a lot of people who learnt it when they were very young. Remember folks, if you're listening live and would like to join me and the couple of others who are in the studio, including Norm from Iran, hello Noam, how are you? And Tom, then please um, go to the Podbean app and download it and look for the live TT radio show. And then you can join me live and chat about any of the urban myths that I'm talking about today. And if you would like to come and join me and speak to me about any of these, whether it be to agree with me or to argue against me, then please do so. I'd uh, appreciate it if you want to do that. Myth number six is something that is widely held by a number of people that you learn better if you discover things for yourself rather than if you have others explain them to you. It's a myth then that that questions the values of having a teacher. Is that right?
4: Discovery learning is very popular and in contrast to learning styles, the scientific consensus is not so clear-cut. What is discovery learning? It was born in the 1960s and promotes student interaction with the material to be learnt in an active, self-exploratory way. Learners should solve problems independently and thus learn to think. Positive effects often associated with discovery learning include learners remembering concepts and rules more fully. Discovery learning ferments intrinsic motivation and the learners will more easily be able to find solutions in new problem situations. Not bad, right? The problem comes when discovery learning is compared to direct instruction. Discovery learning does have a clear positive learning effect when the research is examined, but some research shows that knowledge acquisition is not always optimal with discovery learning. If learners have little knowledge of the domain to begin with, and a lack of experience of discovery learning, then this approach can be less than optimal. A novice learner sees things differently and requires more guidance than a more experienced learner. So, rather than a myth that discovery learning is better than direct instruction, caution needs to be taken and a lot depends on the learners under your care.
1: Thank you Mia. Discovery learning then can be of great value, depending on the context. Um, it sounds to me that rather than one extreme or the other, keeping both in mind as strategies would be the best approach, which makes sense, I think. So it's not that direct uh, instruction is a bad thing or that discovery learning is a bad thing. It really depends a lot upon the learners that you're learning and combining the two of them would be a very good idea and just um, out of interest related to the last urban myth and learning languages becoming impossible when you're older which is not true but it does mean it more difficult noam in the in the studio is is talking about after a certain period of time two hemispheres the two hemispheres of the brain will be divided which are connected by corpus clusum and this makes um learning a foreign language more difficult uh to distinguish uh, uh words espos, and acquisition and learning. So thank you very much uh, Noam for that. And please come and join Noam, myself, and uh, everyone else uh, in the studio and join the show if you would like. Turning now to myth number seven, it is one that is sometimes held by many in the educational system, but not usually by teachers. It's a bit of a surprise i think for a lot of teachers to find out that this myth does actually exist and is believed by a lot of people because usually with uh, teachers when you have a experience of being in class and have experienced teaching large groups of students and small groups of students it's very clear which one is best and this is the myth that the class size does not matter. And I've always wondered about this, so I can't wait to hear what Mia has to
4: say about it. Increasing class sizes has been on the mind of many policymakers and politicians for a long time in many countries. They argue that it has no influence on results, but it usually goes against the gut feelings of many teachers studies produced by john hattie or pisa have found little evidence of impact but the reality is more complex research shows that smaller classes are better because learners pay more attention however there is evidence that class size only makes a difference when there are 16 or fewer learners A report in 2014 by a northwestern university professor on the subject showed that class size was an important determinant of student outcomes and that increasing class size harms not only test scores but could also lead to greater social and educational costs in the future another study carried out by the university of tennessee in the 1980s found that small classes led to significantly higher achievement for students in reading and mathematics and subsequent studies in other parts of the world have shown the same.
1: Thank you, Mia. So I don't think, as I said before, there are many or any teachers who believe in the benefit who believe that uh, who don't believe in the benefits of uh, small classes. And one of the things I read just last night, actually, about this when I was preparing for the show, was this: there is a t- TED talk. Um, by someone from the OACD about this arguing the case for large classes and looking at evidence of uh, successful attainment in places such as Singapore I think was the place that was mentioned in, in the TED talk and that it doesn't seem to affect the students uh, who are Uh, at school in Singapore and who are in very large classes and one of the things that was mentioned in the chapter that I was reading was the fact that what that doesn't take into account is that a lot of students in Singapore once school is finished they do a lot of after school uh, classes and courses um, around um, different subjects and in those after school events, they are in very small groups, and apart from the extra tuition that they're getting, the extra exposure to the subjects that they're studying, they are also learning and getting a lot more personalized attention than they actually do uh, during the normal school day. So, there you have it. It's a fascinating thing, and it's quite interesting to think that some policymakers. Or politicians actually believe that this is a real way of of um, of proceeding. Really, I think um, it it shows a kind of lack of of understanding of what really matters uh, to students for me, and also the idea that they're looking at just to try and save money, uh, which fortunately I think is it is the case that there is this pressure and this sort of common sense that stops um stops an increase in class size to a certain extent uh, at least so now that we have looked at the value of having a teacher let's turn to the value of going to school now i remember as i'm sure a lot of you out there do too that there was a very popular video or series of ted talk videos as well about our next myth with a very famous proponent behind it one that became very influential and uh, also was behind selling lots of books and stimulated a lot of debate and that is the myth that school kills creativity
4: One of the most watched educational videos of all time is the RSA Animate video of Changing Education Paradigms by Sir Ken Robinson. It's also similar to TED Talks he has done. One idea in particular struck a chord with a lot of people, that school kills creativity. Robinson says he believes this because it makes children become less divergent thinkers and that everybody is born creative and genius and that school does a bad job. The idea of the child being born creative and society corrupting them as they grow up originates from the 19th century idea that children are closer to nature. Is it true? We know from Piaget and Vygotsky that when children are learning something new they are creating or constructing new knowledge. A child is not necessarily born creative, but becomes more creative by learning. Most research indicates that when we become older we become more creative. What about school-killing creativity? Well, beyond the surface of the popular YouTube videos, lies research by for example, people like Sawyer, who in his 2012 book Explaining Creativity. The science of human innovation, says I believe schools are essential to creativity. We've learnt that creativity requires a high degree of domain knowledge. Formal schooling is quite good at delivering this domain knowledge to students creativity research certainly doesn't suggest that everyone would be more creative if we got rid of all the schools however schools could better foster creativity if they were transformed to better align with creativity research
1: thank you mia so it does seem that school can still be a very valuable place to go for learning so let's not pull children out and burn them down just yet then so i think one of the things that Creativity research seems to indicate, and this goes against what Sir Ken Robinson was arguing for, is this idea that uh, perhaps schools can become more creative places for students, but certainly uh, they are a place that uh, classrooms and schools are definitely a place that can foster creativity and uh, there we go. So onwards to the next myth, which is that 93% of our communication is nonverbal. Now, this is again a very widely held myth. You hear it all the time that most of and the fact that that we hear that most of communication is nonverbal, I think um, sounds quite intuitive. But 93% exactly? Where did that come from? And it definitely sounds a little bit fishy.
4: The myth that states 93% of our communication is non-verbal is a result of misquoting a study by Dr. Albert Mahabrian, Professor of Psychology at the University of California. His research resulted in what is often referred to as the 738-55 rule, which expresses the ratios between the different elements we use to create meaning it goes like this. The total impact of a message is based on 7% words used, 38% tone of voice, volume, rate of speech, vocal pitch, 55% facial expressions, hand gestures, postures and other forms of body language. How was Mehrabian misquoted? Well, the research was limited to communications of feelings and attitudes, for example, like and dislike. Mahabrian himself said that unless a communicator is talking about their feelings and attitudes, the figures are not applicable. Despite speaking out frequently that he was being misinterpreted, this myth about non-verbal communication persists today.
1: So there you have it. Thank you Mia. If you could see me now everyone, you'd understand a lot more about how I was feeling about this myth and others, 93% uh, more in fact. But as this is the radio and you cannot see me, well, you just have to be uh, satisfied with the 7% of how I really feel that I'm able to communicate with you. Um, So moving on now, the next myth is that we can learn while we are asleep. Sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? I can definitely think of students who would prefer to go to sleep than go to school. Might this be an effective way to learn?
4: Learning while asleep is an attractive idea. Is it possible to learn new information while asleep? Sleep learning has been a popular idea, and in the past, cassette tapes were sold with the intention of people listening to them during the night. Research has established that people anesthetized during an operation were able to remember things that were said during their operation, but that's not the same as learning during sleep. It is chemically induced and lacks the depth of sleep. There was some research carried out in Russia that sleep learning was effective, but nobody has been able to replicate these results and so doubt has been cast on the reliability of them.
1: Thank you Mia. I think, well, I remember that this was very popular when I was younger. When I was growing up, I um, became fascinated with this idea. And I actually There was a time, I can't remember exactly when that time was, when I was a teenager, I think, I think it was before I went to university, that I recorded myself revising, for example, on cassettes, and then played them at night with headphones on while revising for exams. Now, I didn't know how effective that would be. And looking back at it now, I really don't think it was uh, particularly effective. So the results of this very personal but albeit limited research study um, were, were, were inconclusive or were definitely, they didn't really help me, I think, uh, at all I can say. The next myth on today's list is, that the, is the idea that men have a different kind of brain than women. And Mia, as a woman, albeit an artificially intelligent woman what do you think of this one
4: many people hold lots of ideas about gender differences when it comes to thinking many of these are stereotypes and clearly false however there are differences between the male and female brain for instance the language area is in general more active in the female brain when compared to the male brain we also know that boys and girls perform differently in different subjects But this could be the result of cultural factors rather than biological ones. In other words, they are probably unrelated to brain differences. The observed differences between boys and girls then seem to be unrelated to any brain differences. No proof has been offered to show boys and girls learn in different ways.
1: Thank you very much Mia. So, what do we think about that? I think it's quite interesting that, uh there are physical differences but uh it's also very interesting that uh they don't seem to show that the there is any difference in the way that um that boys and girls learn so let's turn now to another myth this is about the brain so it's another neuromyth and that it is that we only use 10% of our brains. Before we do that, I'd just like to encourage people. you still have an opportunity to speak to me live. There are a number of people in the studio at the moment, NoOam, for example, from Iran, Andre, Um, If you would like to call in and just let me know in the chat and I can bring you in and and we can speak about this or any of your myths. I've uh, been following very interesting uh, comments from Norm, for example, in particular about some of these things and uh, would love to speak to Norm about it uh, if, if you feel like it's something you want to do as well of course so let's now look at the last of our myths and this is that we only use 10 percent of our brains Mia, as an expert on intelligence albeit artificial intelligence this should be right up your street
4: the oecd or organization for economic cooperation and development has a center for educational research and innovation that explores innovative approaches to learning and education and which provides and promotes international comparative research you can find it at oecd.org they have a series on neuro myths which includes this one the oecd's center for educational research and innovation has this to say about us using only 10 percent of our brains there is absolutely no scientific evidence which confirms this myth not even to some extent various theories on the origin of this myth exist but there is no significant evidence to suggest that we only use 10 or any other specific or limited percentage of our brains. On the contrary, all existing data shows that we use 100% of our brains. Where does this myth come from? The OECD says it can be traced back to 19th century advertisements and brochures for self help. Apparently, Einstein once said he only used 10% of his brain in an interview when asked about his intelligence, which, if true, didn't help matters. The OECD provides further arguments against the 10% myth. Firstly, that evolution does not allow any wastefulness. The brain has been shaped by natural selection and uses 20% of energy in the body. A brain that only worked with 10% of its power would not be worth the high cost and would be excluded from the gene pool secondly clinical neurology shows that losing far less than 90 percent of brain tissue has serious consequences no region of the brain can be damaged without leaving a person with mental or physical deficits finally electrical stimulation of the brain during neurosurgery has failed to reveal any part of the brain that is not used so this is codswallop again
1: thank you very much Mia and um so that 10 percent uh, is such an arbitrary number isn't it unfortunately it isn't helped that the myth is used in plots of films such as I don't know if anyone's seen it limitless which re- revolves around a smart pill that allows people to use a hundred percent of their brains instead of the usual ten percent it's an entertaining film but it doesn't help dispel this widely held myth i also read that this myth became famous when it was published in a best selling book called how to stop worrying and start living by someone called dale carnegie now we started with one dale dale smith and his corner of experience that was turned into the learning pyramid myth and we're finishing the, with our list of myths uh, with another dale who's helped propagate a different myth about learning I believe we now have, joining me live, Noam. Hello, Noam. Hi, Mr. Stanley. How are you? Do you hear me or not? I'm, I'm very well, Noam. Uh, thank you very much for agreeing to speak to me today on the show, live. It's, it's great uh, to talk to you. So okay. You're based in Iran, is that right? Is it in Tehran? Yeah, I'm living in Tehran. Or elsewhere? All right. And Noam, you've been chatting quite a lot about some of these myths. Is there anyone in particular that you particularly feel very strongly about, whether you believe in it or you think it's something that is very damaging? Uh,
5: um, According to the lessons that I've passed at the university and I'm teaching at the university and institutes, some of the myths that I've heard and uh, you've Mentioned in details, and uh, I have, if I'm not mistaken, the pronunciation of the word, uh, of the word, I mean the name uh, mentioned. Uh, one of the them was related to the learning language as a foreign language, if I'm not mistaken, that she mentioned, and I was studied something about this. And uh, the other one was related to um, uh, creativity of the um, student that has been killed by the. Uh, schools that Ken Robinson, God bless him, passed me some years before. He the kids in 10 times and I almost heard several times. And his idea was perfect. And uh, about the new language as a foreign language, uh, as I wrote in uh, chat room, uh, I said um, it was related to uh, the hemispheres of the brain that. Uh, are connected by a corpus callosum, which is uh, playing a role of bridge between these two uh, hemispheres. And if, um, if a child before, uh, before nine or ten, uh, I, we cannot say exactly, has a, a kind of damage in her, uh, or his left side of the brain, which carries the responsibility of the language. The right of the brain uh, side of the brain then, uh, can take responsibility, and we call it uh, the technical word for that is naturalization. Uh, but after some uh, this age, uh, this can actually be divided, and that's why we, uh, um, uh, students will have problems in learning the foreign language, new foreign language, and uh, they, they should spend more time more energy to learn new uh, languages after these years and um, um uh,
1: it's it's possible to learn a new language but uh, it's a little bit hard and uh, yes so any questions? sorry sorry for interrupting, norm you you're this is fascinating and thank you very much for explaining that that's uh, provided a lot more more detail about uh, that aspect of 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 what I was talking about earlier um where you're breaking up quite a lot your sound quality isn't great although sometimes it is really good and then other times uh, it isn't i don't know if it's because of the connection with your microphone are you phoning in on a on a mobile are you connecting speaking on a mobile yes
5: unfortunately i'm using
1: mobile phone and
5: the quality of the internet is not that much good i'm sorry because of this
1: okay uh, that's all right, but I, I really um, I very much appreciate you taking the time to talk to me as well. That's fascinating. Um, is there a, What about any of the other myths that we've talked about today? Is there any one of them that uh, particularly interests you? Yeah, The other one is that, uh, if, if
5: I make a mistake, please correct me, because uh, it's kind of mis- misunderstanding for me. Um, um, Noam Chomsky has argued that uh, just human beings have uh, the brain, pre-wired, he uses this word, pre-wired brain to learn language. So that's why animals cannot learn language and they memorize something, they're repeating something, but they don't have the creativity of uh, learning language. And the other um, um, reasons that we can prove this uh, argument is that uh, many students, many children May have different types of skills and types of talents, talents. But um, um, but all of them talk and um, all of them learn language. I mean, the mother tongue. Uh, after after two or three years, they will start talking. And some of them maybe are not good at math. The other are, are not good at other different fields. But all of them learn language. And um, so that's why we can say that uh, our brain. Pre-wired and it's ready to learn language Uh, as a mother tongue or the first language. But but uh, I I, I wrote the difference between acquisition and learning is this: Uh, when we are in the exposure of a language, uh, when we are tried, we can acquire it unconsciously and we can use it. We can uh, uh, speaking, but after this age that I told you that at first we should master our first language, then we can go and learn foreign language and it has its own difficulties. Then the personality, talents, um, and some, uh, 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 how can I say, inside uh, factors or outside factors maybe play the roles. For example, age and anxiety is one of the most factors and difficulties or barriers to learn uh, father language. But before this age, I told you that these two sides of the brains are connected to each other. We can learn language more easier. But as, as she mentioned, we cannot say that it's not possible to learn a new language. I had a student and he was really, uh, uh, he has a great perseverance to learn new language. and. Uh, he was about 65 and he learned english and it was really amazing for me and now he's talking in english he can wow. send, send and receive message and it was perfect yeah, i myself uh, uh, experienced that and it, it's possible
1: yes no i i i completely agree with you i think it is it is more difficult but it a lot determines on the uh, is determined by the motivation of the individual students etc And I think it's fascinating to see. I know a teacher who specializes, for example, in teaching seniors. And um, there uh, a lot of the seniors have been recommended to take up another language at a very late age. And some of them haven't ever spoken English before. For example, this is in Spain. Uh, The teacher I'm, I'm thinking about works in Spain. And uh, they've been recommended by their doctors to learn uh, a new language because it, you know, stimulating the brain is is going to be a very good thing for them uh, later. I want to introduce uh, Andre. Andre, you've just joined us. Um, I don't know if you can, you want to let us know how you feel about this or any of the other urban myths that we've talked about today.
6: Yeah, I think it's it's more a uh, a rhythmic thing because the the neuroplasticity for 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 patterns when we're younger, sort of uh, there was a, a it was in a book called uh, Global Brain by uh, Howard Bloom, and what what they found out is that an infant, an American infant, if you put them in a room with with uh, uh, a Chinese uh, uh, in a, having a Chinese conversation to, to uh, Chinese, uh, having a conversation in Mandarin, uh, the the infant would follow the conversation uh, uh, with the body, with, with his body language, with his body movements. And so some people, as you know, have a more uh, just rhythmic sort of uh, an easier uh, time ingesting sort of uh, patterns and rhythmic you know uh, and so you know some people learn or some people have more difficulties in that so they'll have more difficulties in, in learning second languages. I, <clears throat> I speak Spanish and English and it's not that I that I uh, studied English or Spanish it's the fact that I grew up in Mexico and then was moved to America and I just I just learned both languages naturally. And it just it just came down to to being in those environments and just absorbing the sort of uh, the dialectic patterns, I guess. And in in the whole thing, not to change subjects abruptly, but but uh, the difference between uh, the female and the male brain, uh, this this book called Incognito with a, a neuroscientist, uh, his name is David Eagleman. He uh, he points out the fact that that males have a a, you know astronomically higher uh aggressive sort of uh we're we're more programmed to be to be killers to be murderers i guess you know at at an out you know we outnumber the female sort of uh prevalence towards that that's
1: all of that is fascinating, isn't it? I think uh, what always strikes me is that there seems to be so much where uh, we still don't know about the brain and about intelligence. But yeah. lately, it does seem to be that every very every year we, we seem to be finding out more. There is a lot of sort of investigation into the nature of intelligence and uh, neuroscience, etc. cetera, is revealing all sorts of things. So things that are really, really interesting. It kind of makes intuitive sense that the male brain is, uh, as you say, ha- has something related to aggress aggression uh, there, doesn't it?
6: Yeah, yeah, and and more. I, just in the sense of 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 more commitment towards that. You know, you see it in sports all the time. You see it, you know, just just the just the, the quicker you know, sort of, uh, uh, all out sort of just disposition for males to, to, to 100% go to aggression, you know, right away in, 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 uh, in most sort of, you know, activities that involve that.
1: Yeah. And to, to take you back to what you were saying about growing up in a bilingual environment and that's how you learn spanish and english i think also uh, it's my experience that anyone who has grown up in a household for example or a, an atmosphere where two or more languages are spoken then it means if they they have a kind of propensity to languages in general and when they learn a third language, if that's the case, then it's a lot easier than, for example, people like me, who's brought up in a monolingual atmosphere. Um, I learned to a limited extent Spanish at school, and then I moved in my late 20s to Spain, and I've lived lived in a Spanish-speaking environment ever, ever since. Um, I'm married to someone from from Spain and we actually speak Spanish together uh, all day every day and, um, and yet I know that my Spanish is not as good as it should be or as it could be and I also know that actually to get it to the level where it would be very 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 good would take an extraordinary amount of time um, and I'm at the moment where I think you know I should probably try to spend more time uh, getting rid of my fossilized errors and stuff. I don't know what you think about that, Andre. Um, whether you've tried to learn a third language um, subsequently, uh, or if you've noticed that to be the case, what I've just said.
6: Yeah, I I tried to learn German, and and the thing that I I I think it is, it's 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 conversational rhythm that because you can you can learn the words. Uh, but they might not, you know, uh, I guess, uh, you know, uh, people learn in different ways, you know, and, and I think, I think the, the, the thing that most helped me was, was just being in those conversational rhythms, you know, and picking up on those And, and you sort of secondary pick up on, on the, uh the the context you know uh i mean i, I it, that doesn't make sense i guess what i'm trying to say is that is that you can learn the, the the words and the meaning of the words but but to go all in into learning it is to pick up on the 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 differences in the rhythms of the conversations and and you know the the dialects
1: yeah no i think that what you're saying makes makes sense and andre and or unknown um what about some of the other myths that we've talked about today the any of them that have surprised you or that you think you intuitively think are not myths that you actually believe in uh, hello again well i i'll uh... Uh, oh, and, I'll, right. I'll let Noam you go, go, go on right. I, I'll listen
6: to you after you have talk. I missed the first part of the list, so I'll, I'll just let you go go for it. So Shall I
5: stop?
1: Go ahead, Noam. Yeah.
5: Okay, so uh, another part was related to Ken Robinson again, that he, uh, he, he mentioned that we cannot per- make uh, the same permission, I mean, uh, prescription for all of the students and he mentioned that uh, and I think I myself do agree with that that we have different types of students in our school and he, he made this example and it's really tangible for us. He said he, he stopped asking this question first, he said who has uh, uh, twin brother or sister some of the people raised their hand and then said who has brother or sister then some of the other and he said who has who doesn't have and some of them they, uh, then raised their hand and said uh, I bet you that um, uh, even two children, children with the same parents and same, same environments and culture uh, will have different uh, personalities and talents and manners, and all of the people in that show agree. And I think you will be agree uh, too. Uh, we, we, even even uh, the, the children that have grown up in the same family with the same parents and, and culture have different ideas and attitudes, so we cannot treat them in the same way as the parents, but uh, let alone that the, the, the uh, teacher should treat them the same uh, in, uh, in the class. So it's not possible. And that's why he said that uh, schools will kill the, the teach, uh, students' uh, creativity because they, they just make one path for them and they lead them and they force them to follow this path. So, and he believes that if a student is not good in physics so he may be good at, at arts or, or maybe someone is not good at mathematics he is good at chemistry and he, he mentioned that we should find uh, the students talents and then work on these talents to uh, change it to kind of skills and uh, I think it makes sense to me I don't know what is your idea about this
1: What do you think, Andre? I I I really
6: couldn't hear him. I'm sorry.
1: Um, yeah, sorry, sorry, Norm. It's um, it's quite difficult to hear. I I und- I understood you. I, I heard. I think uh, Andre Norm was saying that um, each of the students learn in different ways, and that that aspect of of what Ken Robinson had to say is, you know, I don't think there's any any discussion that that's the case and that um, it should be that at school students are treated and given a lot more personalised attention. I don't think anyone would argue against that and that in some cases in schools and it goes back to this idea of when you have students, uh, learners in very large groups for example or very large classes, you can't give that kind of personalised attention to the students, which is what they need, and which is what exactly you know you need to treat each of the learners as an individual if they're able to, if you want them to develop in the ways that they should do, and um, encourage them to develop uh, their skills for whatever they have talents for, etc. So I don't think there's any, any contentious, there's no, you know, there's no reason why anyone yeah, would argue against that yeah
6: yeah absolutely i mean uh i i heard somewhere uh, i forgot who said it but uh they said that at, that at best the uh curriculum the the educational curriculum is 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 uh is um uh, i guess structured to to benefit maybe maybe 100 types of of uh uh, individual, uh Uh, learning patterns, and uh, humans are immensely, there's, there's millions and millions and millions of types of individual, you know, uh, sort of not learning patterns, but just, just uh, personalities that, that ingest the education uh, in, uh, in, you know, just different ways. And, and until we sort of, uh, and maybe computers will be the, the, the way that, that we can sort of personalize the, the curriculum for, for the different, you know, uh, just ways that, that, that kids, uh, might ingest the the information.
1: Yeah, that, that makes sense to me, Andre, definitely. I think this idea of, of being able to play around, I think, with the different elements at our disposal. You know, if we're able to put learners in into small groups, that that is ideal. If we're not, then there are ways that you can um, approach teaching that can help give more personalised attention, even if you have uh very large classes you're obviously constrained to a certain extent but and then you've got the curriculum what you actually do in class what you decide to teach it's a fascinating area isn't it
6: yeah i think i think that the i mean it it really is it it really is sad for for uh you know anybody who wants to go into teaching but i really do think that the best way to move forward is through uh, technology, it's this tool that we have, and everybody has, you know, in your phone, you know, you 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 individualize your phone to you. Even your news, the news you 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 ingest uh, becomes sort of, you know, the, uh, the everything just on your phone or on your laptop it's all personalized to you and 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 I think that education could be that way if we start using computers now what that curriculum is inside the, the computer programs there's still opportunities there for, for, for people to, to you know for academics to to, to continue uh, uh, going into that but but I think the days of one teacher struggling to to uh, to teach just the 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 variety of of uh, of human you know brains that, that enter a classroom and and we could cut down on the lost causes with this tool. We already know that this tool uh, can 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 be personalized to to even the most you know uh, illiterate you know person out there nowadays you you, they have a smartphone they know if they're young enough they know how to how to work it you know
1: yeah uh, absolutely true I think that's that's so so interesting listen I think I'm gonna have to bring things to a close now unfortunately and um so I'd just like to say thank you, Andre. Thank you, Noam, for joining me today. It's, it's been really interesting to talk to you both. And um, I would love it if you would like to come along again next week. Or if either of you or both of you would like to join me for a particular program, then uh, that would be great as well. Thank you
5: very that much. That sounds good. So it was perfect talking thank
1: to you. you. Thank you, Andre. And
5: thank you. Uh, you know, Goodbye,
1: have fun. Goodbye. So that brings us everybody to the end of today's morning break. Many thanks to all of you who are listening live and thanks also to you, of course, listening back to the recording. If any of you out there, as I said to Andre and Norm, would like to be part of the future show, then looking in more detail about any of the myths spoken about today or any any other subject, then please please get in touch and um, a good way would be on Twitter or LinkedIn or Facebook, Facebook or wherever you can find me really. And remember there are teacher talk radio shows all week and the next show I believe will be later today. I have f- lost the name of the person who will be our presenter, but you can definitely Find them on the Teachers Talk Radio show where you can see the schedule. You can join me again next week at the same time. Bye for now.
0: You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.